I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So it's so wonderful to have you this evening to talk about this extraordinary book, Saxon Lies, which is a work of non-fiction, but is nonetheless still very much a work of storytelling. So I wanted to begin by asking you about the relationship between writing this work of non-fiction and your fiction work. Uh, so for those of you who haven't read it, the book is uh, constructed as a series of conversations with Moroccan women um, from a huge range of backgrounds and experiences. So middle-class women, poor women, uh, straight women, gay women, sex workers, housekeepers, married women, unmarried women, childless women, ch- childful women, and so on. And what's so striking, one of the things that's so striking is that there's a series of consistent themes that nonetheless emerge um, out across this great range of, of, of women. And so I hope we'll talk about those, those themes. But I wanted to begin by asking you a very specific question about something you say at the very start. And this is connecting this book to your first novel, Adele. You say... I can even say it's no accident that I created a character like Adele, a frustrated woman who lies and leads a double life. The double life of basically a bourgeois French woman who is also highly sexually promiscuous. She's a woman eaten by regrets and by her her own hypocrisy, a woman who steps out of line yet never experiences pleasure. Adele is, in a way, a rather extreme metaphor for the sexual experience of young Moroccan women. That's an incredibly provocative thing to say at the beginning of this text. So I was wondering if you could just elaborate on that. What does it mean? Me, provocative? Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that. You know, a few weeks ago, I received in France the Simone de Beauvoir Prize, and I was very proud of, of that. And the man who gave me the, the prize said something that was really relevant, I think. He said, I understand why uh, novelists decided to fight for that and to fight for, for this and to write this, this book, because you lived in a world and in a country uh, where you live in a fiction. In Morocco, I lived in a fiction. Uh, you do as if. You were someone you are not really. When, you, when I was a teenager or when I was a child, my parents, they told me to lie. They told me to be a hypocrite. And I think it was hard for them to tell me that because at, at home they would say, you know, you're a woman and you're free and you can make your own choice and we want you to be ambitious and we want you to be happy and independent. But outside, it's not the same. Outside, it's forbidden for you to have sexual intercourse if you're not married. Outside, it's forbidden to be homosexual. Outside, it is forbidden to have an abortion. And it is forbidden to have any attitude or behavior that people can judge because you will pay for that and the cost of that is very, very high. So you live in a fiction because everyone pretends. So sometimes... uh, I think that if I became a novelist, it's because as a child, I knew exactly what it was to live in, in a fiction. So this book was 
much more difficult to write for me than writing a novel because I love the work of imagination and it's for me much more exciting. But at the same time, when I won the Prix Goncourt, I felt that I have a, I had a voice and I had mm. the possibility to share this this voice with women who don't have the voice and don't have the platform to to express themselves. So I wanted to help those women to speak out, and it was really. You know, it was weird because when I was speaking with those women at the beginning, they were very ashamed, very mm. shy, speaking like this. And the more they speak and the more they looked at me in the eye and saying yes and being proud of what they were saying. So um, it was really exciting for me to, to write that and to meet those characters mm. because when you write, people you write about are always characters. Mm. And so this theme of hypocrisy that you just spoke to, I think is really the dominant theme of this Absolutely. book. It comes up in every conversation you have multiply, right? So to set the scene slightly, you know, as you said, it's impermissible to have premarital sex, extramarital sex, gay sex, and you don't just mean as, as a set of kind of moral conventions, it's actually legally impermissible. But this doesn't result in a a reality where people aren't doing those things. They are, in fact, doing those things. Teenagers are having sex. Gay people are having sex. Uh, people are having extramarital affairs. And the law is arbitrarily enforced. But there's also a kind of general acknowledgement that this is what people are doing. But as you say, the real issue is not what sort of sex you're having, but how you advertise it, right? Whether you advertise it or whether you keep it private. So I wanted to just invite you to say a bit more about what you think that practice of institutionalized hypocrisy, as you call it, does at a kind of psychological level and then also at a political level? First, I think that what is very important is to be aware of the fact that this law doesn't apply the same way when you're rich or you're poor, when you're a man or when you're a woman, when you live in a city or when you live in a country. And that's something I understood quite late when, when I left Morocco. I wasn't aware of that when I was a teenager. But of course, when you have a house, when you have a car, when you have enough money to bribe a, a policeman who will arrest you, when you can uh, bribe also a doctor to, for an abortion, actually you have quite the same sexual life as someone in London, Paris or mm. anywhere. But if you're a woman and you're poor, you won't have the you won't have the choice if you get pregnant without being married that's a tragedy mm -hmm. you can lose everything you can be rejected by your family and become a real pariah so you're um, you you can do anything to get rid of of this child and now in morocco it's between 600 and 800 abortions per day mm -hmm. in dramatic condition and many women die or have terrible consequences because of those abortions. People gain a lot of money also. This is an mm -hmm. economy. Sexuality is an economy because we have a lot of, of course, of prostitution. And I, when I was in, in Morocco with the woman who did the graphic novel uh, adapted from, from this book, one day we, we went to the house of a doctor and he has a very beautiful house. He's a gynecologist and I told her, you know, he, he does a lot of abortion. And she said to me, wow, he's a, such a nice man. That's very nice of him to do this abortion. <laughs> And I was like, no, look at the house and look at the car. That's not nice of him. He's just a man who knows that he will gain a lot and a mm. lot of money. And one day I was in um, Dr. Place and we were waiting. And there was a woman, very poor woman. And you could see that she was coming from the countryside and she was probably pregnant. And she went out of her, her house and her family to Casablanca to get an abortion. She was very shy like this. And there was another woman, she was a prostitute. Mm. And I was talking to the prostitute <coughs> and she said to me, oh, you know, yeah, I got a lot of abortion and they don't want to do anesthesia on me because the doctor all the time, he said, you're going to be punished because mm. you, you got pregnant. So now you're going to suffer and maybe next time you will know. And the other woman, she was like this and she went to she she went to the nurse and she said, okay, can you tell me how does it go and how much is it? And she said, it's how much? And she said, it's too expensive for me. I will come next week. And the nurse said, next week is going to be even more expensive. Mm. So you get to figure it out. What happened to this woman? Maybe mm. she's a prostitute right now or maybe she killed herself. What happened to her? Mm. 
And this speaks to this um, very powerful link you draw between sexual repression and political repression, right? Um, and then also sexual deprivation and social <coughs> deprivation. I don't have coronavirus, if you know. <laughs> I just have little children. <laughs> just the, the small child You're virus. So, you know, you, you're very insistent, I think, correctly, that the problems you're identifying aren't fundamentally cultural problems or religious problems, right, but political problems. Of, of course. They're problems of politics and they're also economic <coughs> problems, right? So the very same people who are economically disenfranchised or sexually marginalized are going to also be the people who um, aren't entitled to the freedoms that rich people can buy for themselves, right? But then you also have lots of very interesting things to say about the way in which being subject to a repressive sexual law disciplines you in a way that then makes you a better subject for authoritarian repression generally. Of course, because as soon as you have desire, you're a teenager and you begin to feel desire and rebellion and you want to do things and you want to go outside and you want to own the public space and everyone tells you no. No, don't do that. Don't express your desire. Don't express your rebellion. Be, be shy, be, um, be secretive, lie, be a hypocrite. So, of course, you teach young people not to, uh, not to get outside and not to, to show who they are and what they feel and their desire. And when you are 16 or 17 years old and you want just to go to a cafe with your girlfriend and you're holding her hand and a policeman comes and says, what are you doing? Who is she? Yeah. And I've, uh, I experienced that. I was 17 in a car with a friend. He was just a friend. And the man said, who is she? He said, she's a friend. He said, but is she your cousin, your sister? Mm -hmm. How do you know her? He said, no, she's just a friend. And I was 17 and the cop said, okay, so she's a whore. And I was like, what? I'm 17, I'm, I'm with a friend in a car. And no, they put you in, in the head that mm. you're a bad person and that what you're doing is bad. So you get afraid of going outside and mm. you get afraid of just, yeah, being in the public space. Mm. But nonetheless, uh, as you document so wonderfully, there is a practice, right? Of course. Of finding spaces and finding ways, especially amongst young people. That can be very funny sometimes. Mm. This finding a place, that's the, you know, if there was an Olympics of finding a place, we would be gold medals, Morocco. We would be the better because, yeah, everyone is trying to find a place. So sometimes it's a forest, sometimes it's the beach. There's a, a, a man, a very famous man in Tangier, he has a big truck and he rents the truck in the afternoon and couples go in the trucks and make love and he's turning around Tangier. And, uh, and you can meet the man and it's very famous. And very often in little towns in Morocco, you can find when you enter the town, you will see little boys with keys and they are doing like this. And they are, um, you, you can pay just a very few for, for the house. But the problem with that also mm. is that nothing is spontaneous. So you have to decide everything, to organize everything. Sex is never spontaneous, it's always organized. So as a woman, it's something that is very frightening because mm. you, the man is going to find a place, he's going maybe to, to have some expense because of, of that. And you arrive in the apartment, imagine that you don't want to have sex in mm. this apartment. And the man will say, no, but you know, It was, uh, I, I had to pay that and uh, it was very complicated for me. So now you're going mm. to have sex, want it or not. So what will you do? You can't go to the police. Mm. The police will say, what were you doing alone in an apartment with this man? Mm. So maybe you will go to jail because you had sexual intercourse while not being married. So the fact that sex can't be spontaneous is a big problem in terms of security for, mm. for women. And in Western countries, we don't think of that, that the fact of spontaneity in sex is a huge freedom mm. actually the fact that you can just decide like this or like that to say no or to say yes mm. I mean so there is one um, <clears throat> one group of women who do think about that in Western countries so I'm thinking about sex workers uh, so one thing that sex workers will tell you about what's called the kind of Scandinavian model of um, sex work legislation where the demand, you know, the, the purchase of sex is, is criminalized, but not the sale of sex, is that it actually has a very similar effect. So because men are afraid of taking 
risks and getting caught, then they set the terms, right? And then, uh, and then that actually um, imperils the yeah. safety of sex workers. Um, so something that's sort of, as it were, well-intentioned, right? It's supposed to be cracking down on the men who buy sex as opposed to the women who sell it. Actually, by um, forcing it into a place that's going to have to be secretive and private, um, exposes these women to greater dangers. But you know, dangers. I think that feminism has a lot to do with speciality, uh, geography. Mm. You know, you all know the text of Virginia Woolf, uh, a room of one's own. The, the question of having a room, having mm. a space where you can dream, when, where you can have secrets, where you can have an intimacy, where no one is looking at you, judging you, where you don't um, endure the, the, the social pressure of your neighborhood, of your clan, of your family. But it's not only that. You know, if, for instance, in French, the expression that you use when you speak of a woman, she has to be here, or to be there for their children. Mm. A woman is supposed to have a, a nest and to be in her house and to stay, you know, still. A woman is supposed to stay still and to be controlled. So I think that this question of geography, speciality mm. for women, is very important. Mm. But so you just brought up the French example. I'm curious to know what you think how different you really think the Moroccan and French cases are. Okay, now obviously there are some significant differences, most obviously yeah. the legal regime. But I'm thinking in particular of this question of hypocrisy and the tacit acceptance of certain kinds of sexual practices that are officially not part of the kind of standard mainstream bourgeois culture. So you can correct me if I'm wrong, but all my French friends say that Look, extramarital affairs in France are tacitly accepted. It's kind of never understood. heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no one's in shock when it turns out that people have been having such affairs. But there's a convention, a social convention, that you don't publicize them, that you don't advertise them. So again, you have a situation that's not totally disanalogous. The, the vexed question isn't what sort of sex you're having, but how how public you are with it. Yeah, but I don't yeah. think it's hypocrite. I think okay. that the right to to secret is very important. Everyone should, no. ha should have the right to have secrets. What I hate in Morocco or this kind of yeah, this kind of. Um, society of culture is the fact that you don't really have the right to secret mm. that's very that's a paradox at the same time you're supposed to lie all the time but you don't have the space or the room to have secrets mm. and i think that everyone and especially women we should all have the right to have secrets mm. and we should all have the right to lie mm. i think it's very important to have the, the right to lie this idea of complete transparency and we should know what you do and with whom and how and uh, no, I don't want. Mm. And I, I claim the right uh, for people not to know what I do and the right not to know what people do. I don't <laughs> care. You know, now in France and everywhere, it's about, uh, you know, with our political people, he sleeps with this and we see a video of that. I don't want to know mm. with whom spe uh, sleep my prime minister or this or that. I don't <laughs> care. I don't want to see the dick of this one. <laughs> no, I don't understand that. I claim the right not to know and I don't want people to know mm. what's my intimacy. I think it's very important to protect your your privacy. What's that? This this craziness about transparency and knowing everything about everyone. And how do you build a couple if you know everything about the person you're with? It's terrible. Mm. I don't want to know everything about my husband. <laughs> I hope he's lying to me sometimes. <laughs> or he doesn't love me. He doesn't like There's me. nothing to yeah. hide. <laughs> Okay, so this is very this is very interesting because one of the questions I was going to ask you is whether you and now I know the answer, but I'm going to tell you anyway is you know do you, you know there's an increasing trend, especially I think in the U.S. amongst certain kind of well again sort of bourgeois people uh, in a move towards greater and greater sexual transparency. So I'm thinking of. Um, the movement towards polyamory as a open and public practice, right? So where it's publicly known that you have multiple romantic or sexual partners, so it's not sort of done, it's very different from the French model of having space for a secret or having space for a lie. But it is supposed to satisfy what some people think is a kind of utopian possibility of, of near total transparency or something like that. And so I was wondering, 
But I, I take it that you don't no, see that as you utopian. No, but you know, as, as a novelist, I think that the most beautiful thing is silence. The most beautiful thing is things you can't express. When you try to express something and you just express like 10 or 20 percent, and uh, I think also that nothing is more erotic and nothing is more exciting mm. than silence. And that non, not saying, f for me, transparency is not arousing at mm. all. A man who would say, okay, let's say everything about what we are doing to everyone, I'm going away immediately. <laughs> I, I don't understand what people can find in, in this. It's not exciting at all. And when you write, you know, when you write novels and you try just to express a, a feeling, an emotion, when you try to explore the soul of someone, you you feel that, that silence is mm. very important. If you say everything, there is no emotion, there is no beauty. What is beautiful is, in a novel is that you choose to say a part of it mm. and the rest is in the imagination of the reader. That's what's beautiful about your novel. <coughs> so actually, it's so interesting to hear you say that because when... Um, I read Lullaby and was telling people that they had to read it. This was exactly what I said. It was that the extraordinary restraint of it, right? All of these times where you stop yourself from saying any more and thus convey an extraordinary amount, which I actually think is an increasingly rare thing in the contemporary novel, right? There is a kind of tendency to try and get to the limits of expression or, or maybe not even recognize those limits, right? You know, and I think it's some something we women are very uh, strong at restraining ourselves from doing things, but it can be a quality. Mm -hmm. You know, very often you hear people saying, no, women are not violent, women are sweet, and women are, are soft, and women, they don't have as much sexual desire. No, they restrain themselves mm -hmm. from being sometimes very violent because we learn how to control ourselves. It's not in our DNA that we are not violent. Mm -hmm. I think that just because we learn how to restrain, how mm. to control ourselves. So, and yeah. channel violence in different ways. Exactly. And so I think I, I try to use that in my, in my mm. writing. Mm. So uh, what you've said about um, the importance of having secrets and the, and the erotic charge of secrecy, I think, is really interesting. Because as I was reading your descriptions of teenagers you know, finding the backs of cars or beaches or forests. I know you were expressing, <laughs> um, you were trying to tell us something bad, but it sounded of very sexy as well, right? <laughs> um, and of course, it's not a million miles away from what teenagers under legal regimes that allow them to have sex experience, right? Because you still have to hide from your parents and, you know. Um, of course, the extra dimension of getting caught by the police and maybe having to pay them off is a step maybe too far. But one might worry that something would be lost if there was <laughs> if there was uh, none of that, right? If there was if any form of sex was okay, even just socially, uh, no, you know. In the... uh, I would be very cautious with mm. that, with this idea that we would lost something. Mm. It's like when in France, I don't know if you remember, after the Me Too movement began, there was this very famous uh, article written by Catherine Deneuve and Camille saying that if we are all equal, uh, we are going to lose something mm. and we are going to lose mm. uh, galanterie. I don't believe in that. Mm. I believe in what Simone de Beauvoir says, that the more equal we will be, the more peaceful our relationship will be between men and women and the more beautiful will be uh, our yeah. life together and we will make love in extraordinary mm. ways that we can't even imagine today. And I don't like this idea that we need violence or that we need danger or that we need that to to have this excitement. I think that excitement mm. come, can come from other things, from secret, mm. from restraining sometimes ourselves, from very simple things, mm. actually. Right, so I mean, so Beauvoir talks, for example, about the, the interplay of imminence and transcendence. She says that will always be there in the relationships between sexual exactly. relationships. Oh, you're but, a professor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, 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 but I think this is good because this is getting on to two different, two different things that are at work in the book. So on one hand, there's this question about the drive towards sort of pathological forms of secrecy as opposed to non-pathological forms. Uh, but, and then there's a the separate issue of equality. Yeah, and, and the question existentialism is, also, yeah, the idea yeah. that you're not built by, by your culture, that you're not what a country may, 
make you, but you mm. invent yourself. You know, in Morocco, everyone is telling me, no, but it's not our culture. But I'm like, mm. you're not your culture. Your culture is what you make mm. of, of it. You can transform it. You can modify it. It's not something that is here forever and that you have in a certain way to uh, uh, subir. I don't know what. To, you don't have to be passive mm. in front of your, mm. your your culture. You can transform it. So I'm I'm an existentialist. Uh, my my father and my my mother they always said to me, you know, we're not going to tell you uh, in which God you should believe. We're not going to tell you that as a woman or as a Moroccan or as this or that you should behave like this or wear this kind of clothes. We don't know who you are. You have to figure it out. And I was like, oh, they are so bad and so violent. I want <laughs> them to tell me who I am. And I was furious against them because, you know, when you're a teenager, you want to belong and you want to be part of a, a community, of a crew, of a tribe. And I was like, they don't tell me who, who I am. But now when I think of it, I'm like, thank you. Thank you for giving me this terrible and sometimes tragic gift of being free mm. and having to figure it out by myself who I wanted to mm. be and what I wanted to to believe and what kind of, of woman I wanted to mm. just to be. So this takes us to an objection that you anticipate in the book and, and take on kind of head on, um, which I take it you've, you have since its original publication in 2017 in French have received, which is that you are playing into a I, I'm not saying this. I'm. No, no, no. You can <laughs> say whatever. <laughs> no, no, no. This is not. Um, but that you know, in offering this account of Moroccan sexuality as pathological and in need of, as you say, a sexual revolution, it's playing into a kind of stereotypical, orientalizing idea of Arab culture or Islamic culture, and you and you very strongly want to reject that. One of the moves you make is to say, look. There's no such thing as a static culture or a static religious tradition, right? These things are public goods that we own or that the member, the relevant people own. And also you say that there's nothing essential in Islam or Moroccan culture that is counterposed to what you call enlightenment ideals. And you also say, and I think this is the most cutting thing, that it's very easy for European intellectuals on the left who enjoy certain kinds of sexual, legal sexual freedoms to mount this sort of criticism. But, but one thing I wondered is, there is a kind of dichotomy that runs throughout the book between Morocco on one hand and, and the West on the other. And I wonder how strong that you really think that dichotomy is. It's very strong, very, okay. very strong. And I think that's a big part of the problem. Mm. Uh, in Morocco, but it's tr not true. It's true also in Algeria mm. or in Tunisia. There is a very violent relationship with the West. It's a relationship of love and hate mm. at the same time, fascination and repulsion. Mm. In Morocco, Morocco was a colonized country, colonized by mm. France. People, they speak or understand at least French. They know a lot about France. Mm. They know a lot about Europe. They have the feeling that, and I think they are true, that people don't know uh, about them as much as they know mm. about the, the Western world. So sometimes they feel that they can go to Paris and they know the name of the prime minister, of the president mm. and the history. And people come to Morocco and they, they feel very good and very dominant, but they know nothing about this, this <laughs> culture. So it can be very frustrating. Mm. And um, I think also that the fact that it's so difficult now for many Moroccans to travel and to mm. go outside of their country and to go to Europe and to be treated like people we don't want to hear about and we don't want them on our continent is something that is very humiliating. Mm, mm. And so there is this idea, you don't want us, we don't want you. Mm, mm. And uh, you don't want our culture, we don't want your culture uh, either. And um, I think also that we don't... Uh, here we, we are not aware of how shocking it can be in a mm. country like Morocco, but in the whole Muslim world, for instance, gay marriage. Mm. If I, try, I tried to explain to my nanny gay marriage and she can't understand that, for her it's very, very shocking. And for her that's the end of the world. The world is going, no, we, we arrive to the end of the world and the world is going to be destroyed. She can't understand that. And when I say to her, but you know, and we have to fight for this. And she's like, if it happens in Morocco, we will lose everything. Mm -hmm. We will lose our culture, our tradition, and we will become like Western world where women are naked in the street. And I'm like, no, we're not naked in the street. It's very cold out there. <laughs> we can't be naked. 
And um, so, you know, people have like a fantasy about this Western world where everything is possible and people get married together and they have children with that in this condition. Mm. So it's, for them, it's at the same time, it's fascinating and frightening. Mm. And um, I must say also that conservatives and Islamists, they use that. They, they use this fear of the Western world and they say to people, you know, you want to live like this? You want to live in, like in those countries where people despise your culture, despise mm. Islam, despise immigrants. So we have to stick for our, for our culture and for Islam and, and this. So there is also manipulation of the, of the, the conservative. And that's why I would never say like, you, I, I like the Western world and I like France and I'm a very happy immigrant and I don't want to do as a lot of uh, Moroccan or Arab just, oh, I suffer, I'm a victim, I'm not a victim and I'm very happy to live in, in this country. And um, sometimes people hate me for, for saying that, but that's true, that's true. So I have, I, I tried to explain Morocco to the French people and I tried to explain mm. France to Moroccan people and I think that's the solution, trying to build a bridge and to say to one another, stop being afraid of, of one another because you can completely get along, live together, there is no problem with mm. that. That's my, my big fight today because I'm sort of a mix of mm. the two. So when you were describing your um, Moroccan housekeeper's uh, view about um, the prospect of gay marriage, I mean, it recalls to me what lots of right-wing Christians were saying in the U.S. on the Absolutely. eve of the debate about, right? So there's, and when you think about abortion restriction and you see what's happening... No, I read a lot about Ireland, for instance. Exactly. I read a lot about Ireland in the 19th century. The violence towards women mm. was terrible when you read in Spain, in the south of Italy. So that's why this question of religion, of course, Islam is not helping. But I must say that I think that no religion is a friend of my vagina. Mm. No. No one wants me to be free and wants my vagina to be free. So I have a problem with every religion as soon as they have a problem with me. So let's talk about what sexual freedom really involves. Because you, you call effectively for a kind of sexual revolution in France. And and that would, oh, sorry, Moroccan. And what that oh, would, France, too, that's, 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 basically the, that's basically the question I want, I want to get at. So one thing that would obviously involve for you um, is legal regime change, right? Um, also the destigmatization, especially of women's sexuality, homosexuality, and so on. But I wanted to know how far it goes for you, because here's what I'm wondering. Lots of people, lots of feminists, Western feminists, would say something like, Yes, it's wonderful when homosexuality is decriminalized, um, when extra and premarital sex is, is decriminalized and so on. But the sexual revolution of the 1960s in the US and the UK didn't really bring genuine sexual freedom for women. It brought a lot of sexual freedom for men. But the sex that is still being had between women and men is sex on men's terms because the fundamental dynamic, the heterosexual dynamic that eroticizes male domination and female submission mm. has been largely left intact. And so what is needed to have a real sexual revolution would be going well beyond just these kind of legal and maybe even more sort of cultural norms into the fundamental psychic relationships between the sexes. Yeah, but you know, I think that now in Morocco we are facing kind of an emergency. Mm. My preoccupation right now is the people who are in jail. Mm. And last year, uh, 13,000 people in jail for fornication, 3,000 people in jail for adultery, mm. dozen people in jail for homosexuality. So 24 uh, children per week abandoned because their mother can't keep them. So this is an emergency. Mm. This is a real emergency. So for me, the priority is to change the law because I can't stand the fact that people are going to jail for that. Mm. And at the same time that myself or my bourgeois friend are doing exactly the same mm. thing and are not going to prison. Mm. And I feel that myself, I'm a bad person doing that and knowing that I can go in front of a cop, he will never arrest mm. me mm. because I belong to the bourgeoisie, because I am who I am, he will not arrest me and I do exactly the same thing. Mm. So for me, that's the emergency. That's why um, one, two months ago, I published a manifesto and I declared officially and I said, my name is Leila Slimani, I'm a Moroccan citizen and I'm an outlaw. 
I had an abortion and I have sexual intercourse without being married. And I asked a lot of my friends and I said, you have to sign and you have to put your name. And at the beginning, they were really afraid because when you live in this kind of, of country, of regime, people are afraid of the police, of the authority. And I say, okay, you know what? If they want to arrest everyone, they will have to build a big, 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 big prison with a lot of jails and there will be millions in this, in this prison. So that's what we have to tell them. Okay, build the prison. Okay, we want to go. All outlaws, we want to go. Do it. And they can't do it. And so at the beginning it was 100, 400, 500, and now we are 20,000 people who signed the, the manifesto. And uh, so I met the chief of the parliament and now we proposed a, a new law. That's why I, I had this Simone de Beauvoir prize. So we mm. can change things. We can change things. And we, but at the same time, you must accept to, to shock and to mm. sometimes to scandalize and to be threatened and to be insulted and um, to endure violence and uh, it's very difficult to, to do that and I can completely understand feminists who don't want to do that because really when you have to experience this violence it's terrible but the worst is not that the worst and that's what I was saying today in an interview is at the end of that people from the liberal wing people from the bourgeoisie like me who comes to me and say you know, you are totally right, but you shouldn't say it. <laughs> and you're like, what? Yeah, yeah, you're right, and I understand, but, you know, we should wait like 10, 20, mm. 50 years. Now it's too early, people are not ready. And I'm like, you know, I will never be ready for a homosexual mm. in prison, never, never in my life. This is the same argument you recently saw in India, uh, running up to the decriminalization exactly. of homosexualities. <laughs> India is not, you know, this is fine, but not India is not ready. And then meanwhile, you have a two-tier system where wealthy gay Indians can effectively conduct their sex lives, not in total fulfillment or in public, but they're not going to be in yeah, trouble yeah. In, this, in the face of the law. And, and then poor Indian... Poor but, you know, the arguments of my opponents are so funny sometimes. There is a very famous Islamist in mm. Morocco. He said, Leila Simani wants to decriminalize sexual relationships because she's so ugly that she probably never had sex with anyone. <laughs> Every day he's posting a different photograph of me and he's completely obsessed by, by me. But obsessed by your and supposed my mother, virginity. My mother, she was so sad and she's answering to you, no, she is not ugly. It's <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. Stop saying that. I like now. Stop doing that. Stop speaking with him, please. <laughs> I'll say one. I'll I'll just ask you one final, or just really say one final thing that I'm reminded of in talking about the Indian comparison, which is that um, this is in part a decolonizing project, right? Because the just as in the same thing in India, in Morocco the law against homosexuality is directly from exactly French law. Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting because people very often say to me, oh, that's because of Islam. And I say, no, if yeah. you look at the Moroccan penal code, he's the exact, uh, the, the inspiration is the Napoleon code. So mm. it's exactly the same, even the way it's written. But it's not only that. I think that colonization is probably one of the biggest explanation in this situation because colonization was a big humiliation mm. for men. They had the feeling that they were, uh, that their territories and their women were penetrated by the, mm. the white men and the white culture and the Western world and they were so dominant. And I think that now they are getting a sort of revenge and women are the ones who are enduring this revenge. Mm. Okay, we will show you that we are strong. And they try to humiliate us and they try to take us, to take our culture out of us and to, yeah, to tell us that we are not good, that we are inferior, we will show you. And women are the ones who are enduring mm. that. So I think that colonialism was... Uh, really a very important moment in, mm. in terms of sexuality in, uh, in those countries. I, I wrote a book with a very famous French historian called Pascal Blanchard and the name is Sex, Race and Colony. And it's a book in which we, um, we have a lot of photographs, photographs of the colonial time and it's very funny because when you look at maps, different maps, Africa or Asia or America is always figured by a woman. And very often she's naked. Mm. 
and she's like this, and the white man is going to conquer Africa, and Africa is a woman. And when he says he's going to conquer, you understand it in a sexual way. He's going to take her, he's going to dominate her, he's going to penetrate her. You know, the core of Africa, the African mm -hmm. continent, the way they describe is very sexual. And I think that this sexual understanding of colonization is very important. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think it's time to open it up to questions from the audience. I just want to say a massive thank you, first of all, for this evening. I'm Jessica Rushton and I'm writing my PhD on Chanson Douce. Oh, so, <laughs> nice to meet you. Thank um, you. I just wondered if I could ask you, because you talk about pariah's identity, this way of having a spatiality. And if we think about Louise and in the Western world, that she seems to have created her identity from the way I read it through her employers, whether you could talk to us a little bit more about sort of women's identity and this creation of this poor sort of for what I look at is this like this the fact that she's come from this like 19th century idea of a maidservant and that the maidservant's like identity was was based through her employees and then you go sort of through this Hegel thing of we recognize each other through each other and I just wondered if you could give a bit of a, a uh, analysis or um on this idea basically of identity. of course um in lullaby I was very interested by the question of uh uh, the the work when it comes to to, to women the division of work uh, in the, the the female world mm -hmm. you know it's like Russian dolls you have a woman inside a woman inside a woman inside a woman and a woman will need a woman to need a woman and um, what I was interested in was the last woman the little one that is invisible because she is inside so many so many women um, you know I had a very Marxist vision of the relationship in this book and I tried to stick with with that and I believe that women are as capitalist as men and that exploitation of women by women exists that's the truth and even if we don't want to do it even if we don't feel like we are doing it but that's the truth if I you know when I arrived in Paris I was looking at Parisian women and I was like this, but with a monosourcil terrible, and I was uh, really <laughs> ugly and stupid with uh, terrible clothes, and I was looking at Parisian women, I was like, wow, they are so beautiful. And, you know, always on bike with just a little makeup, but they look so beautiful and beautiful <laughs> clothes, but you, you feel like, to just take that in <laughs> And the beautiful children who eat vegetables, and everyone is, is so beautiful, and they feel so, you know, they seem so free and everything. And then I met those women, and then even I became one of those women. And the truth is that you can't do this by yourself. You can't do this alone. And you need someone to help you. Because if you want to go at a vernissage at the end of the day, or if you want to travel for the fashion week, or if you want to do shopping on the Saturday afternoon, you will need a nanny to take care of your children. And you will need a woman to take care of your house and to clean and all that. And so I was interested in that, this, those invisible women. And when it comes to speciality uh, and geography, I'm a writer. So as a writer, I don't have an office. I work at home. And in the afternoon, I wander in the street. And I'm always asking myself, what are doing those people, you know, who are in the street? Why are, aren't they in a, an office working? And so I spend a lot of time in, in, in squares or little parks. And in the winter, the only person that you can find in, in a park are nannies, hobos, 
drug addicts and teenagers who are flirting. And so I was, you know, I was observing those people and those women, the nannies, they are here, they are in the city, in the core of the city. And at the same time, they are completely invisible. No one is looking at them. They are just like objects taking a child from a place to another. And it's very funny even the way people speak of them. Uh, when you go to school and they say, the nanny came and she took the child. The nanny. Uh, they never know the name of the nanny. Or when I was speaking with my friends, friends who are feminists, work for Elle magazine and go on strike. And they say, you know, my nanny. And I'm like, she's not your nanny. She's maybe... She's the nanny of your children, mm. but she's not your nanny. You don't own her. So I think that a lot of paradox of our feminism can be shown uh, through the relationship we have with those women. Because even if, and I believe that, we respect them and we try to be open-minded and not racist and everything, but at the same time, sometimes we are racist and not respectful and sometimes we humiliate those women even if we don't want to. But I was very interested by that. Yes, we are feminists, we are free, we can do a lot of things and we want more and we want everything and we are right to fight to have everything. But what do we do with those women coming from Philippines, from Côte d'Ivoire, from all over the world who leave their own children to take care of ours? When will, will we fight for them? That's, I think, a very important question. I was interested in what you said about spontaneity and the impossibility of expressing physical affection in public space. I was interested in whether online dating has become popular in Morocco or other parts of the Arab world in the same way it's popular here. Because one thing that some people have commented on in recent years is that actually the amount of people going out in public in, in the West, in places like London, in order to basically hook up with people to have sex with has really gone down. And actually, in a funny way, everything is sort of becoming more private and the kind of the concept of you know dancing with someone in a nightclub and you know flirting with them yeah i'm not in i'm not doing a catherine Deneuve at all I mean, <laughs> i'm not saying like galantry you know needs to come back but i'm just curious about this weird thing that seems to be happening whether where the pri private space once more seems to be coming like much more the locus of of sex or or whether online dating is I don't know. I, I guess I'm asking, is this a No, no, I completely understand your, your question. It's very relevant. And I think that, you know, I'm very surprised that Tinder was not invented by a Moroccan because that's <laughs> so perfect, you know. You're at home, you can find someone, you give him his, your address, he comes and you fuck. That's perfect for Moroccan people. And um, the truth is they are using it a lot, a lot. And especially in the homosexual community. Because in the homosexual community, there is also this question of the danger. You can meet someone in a, in a, you know, a bar or somewhere and you come with him into your house and, now, and then you discover that he didn't come for having sex or because he likes you but he wants uh, to steal from you or he wants to harm you uh, because he hates homosexuals. So there is also this thing. So now maybe they feel safer on, on apps because they know the person, etc. But um, what you were saying before also about spontaneity is what is funny is that now the statistic shows us that with the apps it's really easier to have sex but we have sex less and less. And I'm sure that the more spontaneous it is and the more, um, the more sex depends on a, some, a person you meet, uh, uh, something you decide to do, you decide to go with a, a friend somewhere to a bar, to a party, and then you meet someone and you have sex. I think that, that when you, the spontaneity is impossible, you have less sex. I am pretty sure that just looking at someone on a, on a screen is less exciting than going out and thinking that maybe, maybe something can happen. So I'm not sure that sex can be a, a product like anything. Like, um, and it's happening to everything. I was saying that tomorrow today. Even feminism has become a product. Feminism is something that now people use in marketing to, to sell lipstick and t-shirts and uh, TV shows and anything. That's the, the genius of capitalism. They can take anything and make it a product. And yeah, so you were saying earlier, so obviously you got the uh, Simone de Beauvoir uh, price and obviously she's like such an important figure for French feminism but I feel like now a lot of contemporary feminism is shaped by 
English or American thinking and a lot of big movements like Me Too, like it comes from America. And so I was wondering what was your perception of the differences between, say, Anglo-Saxon feminism and French feminism? And if you could talk about that a little bit. Yes, what I like in the French feminism and especially in Simone de Beauvoir figure is the universalism, is the fact that, first of all, we're not defined by our culture, our religion, the place we were born in. We are just defined by the fact that the fact that we are human beings and that we have the right to claim for universal rights. In the US, what I'm interested in is what they call intersectionality, intersectionality. I think it's very interesting, in fact, to say, and not only interesting, but very true, to say that, yes, there is a problem of equality between a man and a woman, but there is also a problem of inequality between a white woman and a black woman, and a problem of inequality between a rich white woman and a poor white woman. So I think it's very interesting also to to have a more, uh, yeah, more large view on on the situation of, of women. But what I don't like, or what I at least don't understand, is this idea of defining yourself all the time by your gender, your color, your community. I don't believe in that because I was not raised in, in that. I don't consider myself a woman all the time. Sometimes when I write, I consider myself an old Russian man and an alcoholic, uh, whatever. And uh, sometimes, you know, I, I, I have this, this freedom in, in me and I think that being a, a free woman of, or a free person is sometimes being able to be someone you're not or being to, to put yourself in, in someone else's shoes when you're a novelist. You know, you identify yourself to men, to women, to children, to old people, to black, white, uh, yellow, red, whatever, blue people. You can be whoever you want. And when you read, you know, when I was a child, I was living in Rabat in, in, in Morocco and I was reading Anna Karenin or I was reading Martin Eden. Anna Karenin, she was a woman of, in Russia in the 19th century, but she was me. And Martin Eden, he was a, an American, he was white and he was a man and I was him. I was completely him and I could understand everything, every emotion he had. So I think we should defend that, the fact that we can be someone else and that we can understand other people, even if they don't share the same religion, because there is a universality of emotions. At the end, we all die the same. We are all afraid the same. We, are all, we are, feel all the desire and the sadness the same. And we spend a lot of time trying to explain our differences. And I think that we spend less and less time trying to explain what makes us just the same species, just animals. I just uh, was interested in the manifesto that you mentioned and that you had started having meetings with the government in Morocco. I was wondering if you have seen emerging any sort of hierarchy between decriminalizing different practices, so whether it's like extramarital sex or abortion or homosexuality. Yeah. First, abortion. They are okay for abortion because it's a public health problem and that today there are too many women who die or who have very bad injuries and um, that's probably the, the, the easiest thing to explain to society because even men, they don't, sometimes you know men in popular class or lower class, they have two children and there's an accident and the woman get pregnant and even the, the husband he said we don't want our children how will we do so i think that for them that's politically the the easiest uh, thing to to explain so abortion first then maybe decriminalizing sexuality in heterosexual uh, relationship the most difficult thing is homosexuality and when we began the manifesto i called my my friends in lgbt activists and I said to them, we have a problem. Uh, I want to publish the manifesto, but I know that if I use the terms homosexuality in the manifesto, it's going to be very complicated for me to convince people to sign it. So are you okay? And will you trust me if I say to you, if I tell you that I'm going to fight for it, but we need to do this first and to do it step by step. And I feel very uncomfortable to ask you that, but are you okay? And they said, of course we are okay, because we know. We know how hard and how taboo it is. And if you do that, you're going to stop all the fight and we need you to open 
the first doors and then we will come after. But in the Muslim world, homosexuality is still, in Muslim world and I was saying all in, in Africa in general, you know, the situation of homosexual in Africa is terrible. In Egypt is absolutely terrible, in Uganda, in many, many countries. Firstly, thank you to both of you for sharing such a fascinating conversation. Um, I'm going to cheat and ask two questions, but they're related for uh, Leila. Firstly, are you planning to write fiction or non-fiction in your next major work? And secondly, you're too young to think of legacy, but do you think in the long run your fiction or your non-fiction will have more impact? Uh, uh, whether you care or not, or because obviously your novels are not as outwardly political, but maybe more people read them because yeah. more people read fiction. Thank you. My next novel will be published in a week in Paris. So yeah, that's a big, big thing, and it's a trilogy. And the first, the first part will so will be published now. And it's um, my first novel that takes place in Morocco. It's inspired by the story of my grandparents, and actually, it's, it will be the story of a whole family between 1945 and today. So the first part is uh, between 1945 and 1956, so the independence of Morocco. And it's inspired by the story of my grandmother. She was from Alsace, from the east of, of France, and she fell in love with a soldier of the colonial army, a Moroccan man. And she was very tall, and he was very small, <laughs> and uh, like he, he was I mean, here, and she was always looking at him like that. She was blonde with green eyes, and he was very brown with dark, dark skin. And so this couple decided to come to Morocco in 1945 and to live in uh, the Medina. And my grandmother, who was very adventurous and very romantic, she thought she was going to live like Karen Blixen. You know? <laughs> I had a farm in Africa and it was not like this at all. And my grandmother, my grandfather was very austere, very silent man and yeah, quite quite violent and the family of my my grandfather they were nice to my grandmother but it's you know it was not that easy to to to, to live in a, in this country especially during colonization so that's the the first part and to be honest when it comes to the impact of my book what i care about is my fiction i care about my fiction and i don't care about impact i care about Will you love them? Will you take care of them? Because I love them so much. And I take care of them for so many weeks and months and I live with them. You know, when you write, you, or for me, it's like this, you develop a lot of tenderness for human beings because you get aware of uh, how fragile we are and how uh, vulnerable we are and how much flaws we, we have. And uh, when I write, I try to... I want to defend them. I want to give them a chance or a second chance. I, I'm like a sort of lawyer trying to defend uh, to defend a case, and I I don't want how to say in 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 English, but in, in French I would say œuvrer pour leur salut for their their salut. You know, I don't know if you can say. I try to save them in a certain way. So the only impact that imports for me is I want my readers to be to be moved and yeah and to like them and maybe one day to think about this character Mathilde or Louise and say oh I remember her or she she was a part of of my life uh, there's a question all the way in the back from your translator oh <laughs> no man asked a question no Quite but right. I, I thought I would um, raise the subject of men because <laughs> the book is not just uh, interviews with with women or the voices of women it also has one man a policeman and the father of one of your friends and i thought that with this piece you sailed closest to the wind for me this was the most uncomfortable and i mean everything was moving but this was the most tense to read and translate because this is a man who i think was most in danger by being in this book he was he was he was i think living the hardest double life, the, the, the double life that was the most difficult to reconcile. As a policeman, he talked about the fact that the law could not always be upheld. And I'd love you to talk a little more about his role in the book and in your thinking. Yes, you know, this man is the, the father of a friend of mine. 
and she loves her father and she was always telling me about her father and how nice he was to her and the, the fact that he wanted her to be independent etc and one day I was having this discussion with my mother and she told me but you know I know a lot of men like that and especially in the middle class a lot of men who have um, girls and boys they can see the the big difference is that the women succeed much more at school because to be honest women they stay at home they have the mother and they stay at home to study so the the success at school is much more better and you can see men father who are more and more proud of their daughters and they change their view on women and they say oh, maybe i was wrong when i was saying this or that about women, and so proud of her because they study, they become doctors, they become uh, lawyers, they become teachers. And so that's why I wanted to ask him, but I could have asked also the man who's uh, working in my neighborhood, he's doing the gardens in my neighborhood, and he's a very, he's a poor man, he has nothing, and he's struggling in his life, but his um, daughter became a policeman. Mm -hmm. And the other doctor is a teacher and a very, very good teacher. And he has two boys who did nothing. One of the boys is in prison and the other one is unemployed. Mm -hmm. And this man also told me, you see the difference. And at the beginning, I was, of course, thinking, my boys are going to make me proud. And it's not the case. The case is my daughter are, are making me proud. And it's something that is changing a lot in the Moroccan society. And I think that the fact that women are so... Um, are working so hard and so implied in their study because you know they are the first generation of women who are massively going to the university and of course it's going to change the the country because they are going to earn money they are going to be independent and they know a lot of things they want to travel and they don't want someone to tell them what to do or what to what to think so yes i think it's going to be the the big change also about men uh, very often people ask me why I'm a feminist and of course I'm a feminist because I want to fight for women and I love women but I'm a feminist also because I love men and I adore them I adored my father I adore my son and I adore my husband and I have a lot of, of friends who are of male friends and I'm a feminist because I want to fight to live in a world where I can live peacefully with men, where I'm not afraid of them, where I don't think maybe he's my enemy, maybe he's going to harm me. You know, the other day my husband went to the swimming pool in Paris. It's a very gloomy swimming pool near my, my house. I would never go there. And, and he, he can't see. He has the glasses and he can't see. So he took off his glasses and he was swimming. And there was a woman in the swimming pool. And he said to me, you know, I could feel that she was afraid. She was alone with me in the swimming pool and I could feel she was afraid. And I thought, you know, that's the kind of a feeling I would never have as a man. I don't know this feeling. I'm never afraid. Even if I'm in, in the street alone in the night with a woman, I won't be afraid of the woman. But I know she will be afraid of me. And he said to me this kind of fear. I, I forgot about that. It's the kind of fear I had when I was a child. Mm -hmm. This irrational fear you can, you can have. And so I, I'm a feminist also because I want us to live without this fear. And I don't want to look at a man in a swimming pool and to think, oh, maybe he's going to do something and harm me. Oh, a man! <laughs> yes, I, I um, rose to the base token, token male. Um, I, I was... Um, interested in what you were saying about privacy and uh, almost secrecy if you like uh, i wouldn't say as a beneficial thing but as a necessity or something that you cherished or, or valued but thinking about adele in a way uh, when i read that novel it's as if this woman is leading a a secret life only to be discovered absolutely um, so I just wondered if, you know, whether you could um, reconcile that idea of privacy and maybe secrecy isn't quite the right word. And yet you've written a novel which, in a way, I mean, I got reminded as I read it of the, uh, the Wisma Arabur, where mm. 
a woman is paid to knock on the door while he's having sex, uh, the, the uh, hero of the novel, because it's a further pleasure and excitement. And I just wondered how you... I think there's a lot of contradictions and, and of course. questions there to deal with. When I wrote Adele, I was interested in the mechanism of addiction, in the fact that this woman has lost um, the freedom to say no. She's like a drug addict or like an alcoholic. She's having sex like a, an alcoholic is drinking. She's always saying to herself, that's the last time, I will stop. I will never do this again. And she does it again and again and again. So in her case, there is no pleasure in secrecy. There is no pleasure in intimacy. And I even think that she, she doesn't really experience any intimacy because she is in a bubble. She's completely closed. She's completely, she, she can't communicate with, with anyone. So in the case of Adele, it has, I think, nothing to do with, with secrecy. It's more sort of double life that she has, exactly as you said, because she wants to be discovered. She wants her husband to know because she feels trapped in, in this thing. But we are in a bookstore and for a very, very long time, uh, people hated the fact that women were readers. Mm -hmm. For very long times, we uh, forbidden women to read and especially to read novels very bad for the spirit of women. Women are so weak and so fragile. If they read <laughs> novels, they're going to get completely crazy. Look at Madame Bovary. Mm -hmm. Madame Bovary is the woman who reads novels. But Anna Karenine, we forget about that. She's always reading. She always have a novel with her. Why people hate that? Because the fact when you're reading, you're having a secret. That's a secret reading. You're just, you're alone with your book. That's a moment of intimacy. That's a moment where you're not thinking about uh, doing, uh, cooking the food for the children, taking care of this or, or of that. You're going out of these domestic problems and you have a room of your own, a place of your own in this book. You have this intimacy. And for me, the I understood that when I was very young, this place for secret, the first place was book. You open a book and you have a secret. And no one can, can come and steal that from you, can steal this emotion from you. And um, this question of time and this question of domestic pressure is very important too. When you have to work all the time, to take care of the children, to take care of your husband, to, to do all these things, you don't have the time for secrets. You don't have the time for intimacy. You don't have the time for fantasy. So that's why I think there's a link between a certain freedom and secret. Because when you have a little time, that is a time for you. There is a time for selfishness, a time where you do things where no one is going to ask you, not your children, not your parents, not your husband, what were you doing, where are you going, what are you thinking? No, a a moment that is just yours. And when I say secret, it's not cheating on your husband, but it just can be going to the cinema alone, doing something that you don't do for other people. There is a very beautiful text of Virginia Woolf called The Angel of the Household, and where she explains that she killed this character, the angel of the household, this woman that is so nice, always thinking of other people. And I think that we should fight as women also for the right to be selfish and the right to disappoint people. I don't want to take care of people all the time. I want to have some moments just for me. And I try to be a good person, but I don't want to be this sacrifice figure for my children and everyone. And sometimes I know that I disappoint my children, that I disappoint my, my husband and my mother, and that people dislike me for that. But you know what? I don't care. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Can you please join me in thanking Leila? Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.